if you have an eye for detail, or perhaps if you're, if you're a bit of a Christmas Advent traditionalist, you notice that something was missing. All the decorations are set. We, we lift up our voices. We lift up our, 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 our song. We lift up our hearts. And yet there's something missing. It's the Advent candle. And that's what that tradition was started for. In, the, in, in a time of, of darkness, especially in northern Europe, at a time that was meant to be a season of hope, and yet it's dark and dreary and dismal, like much of a Pacific Northwest winter. A tradition around evergreens and, and candles was born that would anticipate, that would point us toward his coming. And week by week, one candle was lit, and another. In fact, a pink candle was added just to, just to party it up a little bit, just to bring a little more festiveness into the occasion that needed it. Because even, even as I try to light this lighter, Yeah, it, uh, it's lit a few too many candles, I think. Yeah, is that going to work? Yes. And so week by week, lighting one candle and another, and on Christmas, the Christ candle, as was first lit last night. And yes, those are only... Five little flames, and what can five little flames do? But they do bring light in the midst of darkness, and that is indeed, that's what God has done for us. He has brought light. And yes, it's still dark. That remains the problem. And yet we have seen the light of his coming. Those who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Those who live in a land of darkness, the light has shone upon them. I wanted to rehearse a little bit. We have been traveling this Advent season through the, the gospel narratives in Matthew and Luke, following the story, and of course we come to that, the, the climax of the story where there in Bethlehem, the Christ child is born. The shepherds hear the, the heralded announcement that we sing about, and they come and see, and they go and tell. And, well, that's the, that's the high point of the story. So here we are now, just following that. What do we tell next? Maybe some of the kids could help me. What happens next in the line of Christmas stories after the birth, after the shepherds come, after the shepherds go? What happens next? Does anybody remember? Yeah? The wise man. Tell me about the wise man. How many were they? Four? Yeah? 
There were three, he's quite sure. We three kings from Orient are, right? Well, unfortunately, we don't know that there were three. There were quite likely more. There were three gifts, you're right. They were not kings. They were magi, magus. They were not kings. They were kingmakers. And they were from the east, though we think of the Orient being a little farther to the east. They were from a little nearer to the east from Israel. They were from the land of Parthia. Think of the empire of Persia, the core remnant of that. Think of Afghanistan, Iran, and Iraq. Those would be, that would be the core of Parthia, who were the eastern neighbors to the Roman Empire. And then there was, Rome wasn't always such good neighbors. They were seeking to move in and expand the Roman Empire further to the east until, after several unsuccessful attempts, Augustus decided, we're not going to do that anymore. We're going we're to have a peace between us, and Rome will only move west instead, on into the rest of Europe. And so, it's in that setting that after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, and this is the point, when I say Herod the king, you all say, ooh, all right, you can do that. Great, a little, a little church theater this morning. Behold, magi from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who was born king of the Jews? You see, they are king makers. It was, this was a nobility class whose role it was in the Parthian and before that the Persian Empire to identify in all the complicated lineage who should the next king be. Who was the coming king? So that was kind of their career question. They ought to know this. They ought to be able to do this. They are the right guys for the job. And so here they come. If a king has been born, one who is born king, that's interesting. For we saw his star when it arose and have come to worship him. Oh, they saw his star. You see, it's been said that there in Persia, long winter nights, clear skies, there's not a lot to do. They, they, it's dark over half the time. They don't have cable, so they watch the stars. Okay? And as they're watching the stars, just about the time of the Jewish New Year, they see something new. They see something fantastic that in their careers, they were experts of astronomy as well as literature. They studied the stars. They studied the scrolls. Of their, of their own history and literature and of the peoples around them. And they saw something, however, that they hadn't seen before if they had been watching in the night skies. They would have seen, they, they understood that there were stars that had been hung in the heavens and there they stayed in particular patterns and they named those patterns. You, st you still have that in astrology and astronomy today. They, they also recognized that there were others that would move or wander through the heavens. We call these planets the wanderers. And these wanderers, some of them, they were more prominent than others, brighter than others, apparently nearer, more important than others, like Jupiter, whom they called the king, Venus, whom they named the mother. And there that night, if they were watching, they would have seen... The king, star, the king planet, rather, Jupiter, 
come near and come into convergence with a fixed star, but also a very bright star, the brightest in the constellation of Leo the lion, known as Regulus, or Regulus, the king. And so the king planet comes into alignment. It's called a conjunction. It stacks up right on top of that, the king planet and the king star, forming together a brighter star in the heaven than they had seen before. And then, of course, Jupiter moves along. And then it comes back, and it aligns again. And then it moves on, and then it seems to reverse direction, and it comes back, and it aligns up a third time. It's called a triple conjunction, and in their near history, they'd never seen anything like that. It had not been recorded before. This was unique. This was special. And in the constellation of the lion, it also reminded them something. Well, well, where is there a record of a lion in the writings? Perhaps the lion of the tribe of Judah. They had connections through Daniel the prophet in his days in Babylon. Maybe it was that prophecy, remember, that was given early after Israel is redeemed out of Egypt and getting ready to enter into their new life with God in his promised land. And the prophecy is given, I see him but not now. I behold him, but not near, for a time yet far away. A star shall come out of Jacob, Israel. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. And that prophetic word was not given to Israel. That prophetic word was given to a people to the east, to Moab. Now, not the Parthians, but perhaps they knew of that one as well. After all, the heavens declare the glory of God. And these magi had seen something of his glory. And so they come to Jerusalem and they're asking a simple question. They come to Jerusalem, they're probably expecting parties and celebration and everybody's so excited. The king has been born, him who was born to be king of Israel. Well, they come to Jerusalem, they start asking, well, where is the king? We saw his star, we've come to worship him too. And people are saying, shh, shh, don't, 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 don't go saying that out loud. Now, this wasn't new news in Israel. By this time, in the chronology, Anna and Simeon, you remember those two older, those two senior saints that have been waiting for the promise to see it with their own eyes, and they behold him when Jesus is brought into the temple eight days after his birth to be dedicated? And so Anna and Simeon have already been telling people, making known to all those who were looking for the hope of Israel. And so the Magi come, but they're just asking people on the street. I mean, they were expecting a party, and here they are, people are, people, people are, are, are working and shopping, they're gossiping and grumbling, life's just going on as normal, and they're telling these, these Magi, stop talking about a king. Why? Because word's going to get to Herod. Oh, well done. And, 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 and Herod, is, Herod is evil. Herod is mean. Herod is paranoid. <coughs> Excuse me. Herod is near death himself. He doesn't have many months left, whether he knows it or not. But Herod is paranoid. He has killed his own sons because he thought they were after his throne. And when Herod hears of this, these, these Parthians who have come, he's in a bit of a fix. When Herod the king heard, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. 
Herod's a bit paranoid, but he's got a delicate situation. You see, Augustus has made a peace with the Parthians, the Persians, that Herod doesn't dare upset because Herod has already bumbled his way into Arabia and caused a mess for Caesar there. And Caesar is getting a little tired of Herod. And so he can't create a, a diplomatic international incident here. These guys, you could say, have diplomatic immunity. These foreign nobles come into his kingdom asking questions about a king. How dare they? But what can he do about it? And so first of all, he gathers his information. Herod does his research. Herod, when Herod needs an answer, isn't it interesting that Herod... Herod knows where to go. He calls the scribes. He calls in those who know God's word, who knows God's book. And he says, he asks to them... Where was the Christ, the Messiah, to be born? And they tell him, they know. In Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel, who will not only lead them, but who will care for them, who will provide for them, who will be the good shepherd, in fact, who will lay down his life for the sheep. And so, out of little Bethlehem, who is not at all least among the rulers, this little village is now called a ruler among the cities of Israel. Isn't it interesting how God seems to do the most from the least? What seems impossible, and look what God does. What seems so little and insignificant, and then look how God provides. What seems so, as you have said, but what can I do? Which is never the question, it's always, but what would, will God do? And so, here, we see again how, how even with Bethlehem, God's Power is made perfect in weakness. It's not a matter of, am I strong enough? Can I do enough? It's God is strong enough, and God will do more than we could ask or even imagine. He summons them. He gets his answers from them. And after listening, after listening to these scribes, then he summons the wise men. Herod summoned the wise men, the magi, and secretly, he doesn't want anybody else in town to know that he's talking to them. He ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. When did you first see it? How long ago was that? Well, it was actually just over a year ago. And then uh, nine months or so later, then, then, then this other thing happened. And then we knew it was time to go because not only had we seen Jupiter, but then nine months later we saw that, that uh, or, or they may have seen, that that king star or that king planet, Jupiter, now comes into conjunction with another very bright and near planet, Venus. So the king comes in conjunction with the mother. And, they, and that occurs from the east. It occurs to the west, right over the land of Judah, right over Jerusalem. And so they say, it's time to go. And off to Jerusalem they go. If anybody will know where the king is, we'll find him in Jerusalem. And so they go. And Herod summons them. He finds out this information from them. And he says, you go and find the child. 
You go seek after him. Why does Herod tell them that? What does Herod tell them he wants to do as well? Do you remember? He says, so that I can come and worship him also. Herod says he wants to come and worship. Do you think he does? No, not at all. Okay. Well, after listening to the king, they go on their way. But you got to think these... um, these wise guys are not dumb guys. They, they, they know something about kings. They're king makers. But they're a little separate from the politics. But they have an upfront close seat, don't they? They've probably learned along the way to listen carefully to what kings say. But be very careful about what kings do. Maybe it's caught their attention already. If Herod so badly wants to worship the child, why does he not Come with us. And what of these scribes? What of these experts of the law who knew the answers, who could sit from the sidelines, comment and point to where Messiah would be born, but who cannot be bothered to get up and go and to see if indeed these things are so? So they go on their way, and behold, as they set out that evening, because, of course, they're following a star, That star they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over a place where the child was. The star is moving before them, and we've already talked about planets wandering through the heavens, and there's movement there. But how is it that the moving stars stop? Now that's a problem, isn't it? Except at a particular time, and astrologers today... Astronomers, sorry, not the astrologer people. The astronomer people, they can go back and they can, they can track back. The heavens move like clockwork. God has ordained these things in the sky that they are predictable and they continue. And you can move it backwards now in computer programs and you can see that at a particular time, on a particular night, from Jerusalem toward Bethlehem, Jupiter comes to a point where it's moving through the sky in this direction and then it seemingly stops and sits there. Now, how does that happen? Because there are times, particular times, for short spaces of time, when the movement of other planets and the movement of the Earth come into sync. And then they go back out of sync again. But during that short duration, when they're moving together... It seems there's no relative motion between them. It looks like the star that you are watching in the sky has stopped. And that's what they would have seen. Now, the amazing part of that is this. God knew when it would happen. In the fullness of time, at just the right time, God sent forth his son, born of a virgin. And he knew the when, he knew the where, he knew the who, he was going to show and lead to the Savior's side. God knew it all when he hung the stars in existence. And when he put the planets in their places and he gave them just a little push to move them on their way. And God knew all the timing of that. Does God know his creation? Yeah. Are you part of God's creation? Does God know the stuff and the movements and the turning, even the troubles of what's going on in your life? 
God is not distant, far away, unknowing and uncaring. Our God is near. Our God is intimately aware and involved and engaged with his creation. And so, when they saw the star, they rejoiced with great joy, going into the house where the star had stopped. Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshipped him. And opening their treasure, they offered him gifts. Do you remember what the three gifts were, kids? Kids, help me out here. Go ahead and shout it out. What was one of them? Gold. What was another one? Frankincense. And the last one? Why those things? I mean, there's not a toy car. There's not a, a, an, an Apple watch. I mean, why those things? Well, okay, the gold you can do most anything with, right? That's a good one. Well, gold is a good tribute for a king. They confess that he is our king. Frankincense was a symbol of prayer, the incense used in prayer. And perhaps that's a recognition that this one would intercede for us. He would be the one to go to God on our behalf. And myrrh is expensive. It was used as a perfume among the very wealthy, but it was also used at death. Sometimes at great sacrifice, at a time of a person's death, wealth was expended in order to buy the myrrh, which would be used to cover the aromas of death in the grave, perhaps given to this child because he is the one who would die for us. And then after giving their gifts, their tribute to the king who would be our intercessor, who would die in our place, then being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now this was also a problem for them. Because they're going to, if they leave Bethlehem, going back to Persia, they're going to be going up the road to Jerusalem. They're going to take a right and head down to Jericho and then up the king's highway and on their way. But that's going to take them right by Herod again. Even if they don't report in at the, at the palace and tell them where they've been, Herod's going to know. His guards are going to see them going by. In fact, perhaps Herod had spies who were already going to inform him as they followed the Magi, as they probably instead went west toward the coastal plain. And then they went north up the way of the sea, that coastal highway, got all the way up into Sidon, out of Herod's territory, and then they moved back toward the east again. And if Herod's spies were following them west and then north, they would not have ever seen the young family that God had directed to instead go south and down into Egypt. You see, God is able to look after his own. And when they had departed, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and they departed to Egypt. And Herod, Herod was enraged. Herod was enraged that he has been tricked by the Magi. He became furious and he sent and he killed all of the male children in Bethlehem, knowing that the Messiah would be a son. He kills all the male children in Bethlehem and the whole area who were two years or older. 
He took the time that the Magi had given them and he added a bunch of months to it just to be sure, just to, be, just to know that there was no chance that he would miss eliminating God's Messiah, that he could still be king. Now, if God is in such control of his creation, if God knows the moving of the stars in heaven and the magi upon the earth, could not have God have stopped Herod? Could not God have prevented that terrible tragedy from happening and other tragedies along with it all along through time? But are not those, first of all, the reason Jesus came? Did not the righteous king come because of the selfish, sinful, sinful asserting of man over another for the accomplishment of our own aims and our own agendas to serve ourselves despite the harm to others? And even the weakness of our humanity in our mortality. Did not God, in fact, send his son into that brokenness, into that trouble, because of that brokenness, to bear it in our place? Even as he who knew no sin himself would take humanity's sin upon him, that we would be able to receive from him a righteousness from God, a right standing with God. God is sovereign, even over his fallen creation. He knows his creation. He knows the troubles of it. And he knows you. And his intention is not, first of all, to give us the bestest Christmas ever. No. His intention is to give you the bestest eternity ever to give you life with him forever. And sometimes it's even through the midst of the troubles and the tragedies that we see the, the emptiness and unfulfillment here and the fullness that can only be found in him. That we cannot have peace unless we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. We will not have peace together in humanity until the Prince of Peace comes to be with us, to reign for us. And that's what the Advent candle anticipates and looks forward to. Now let me go back to those scribes for just a moment. Herod overshadows the story, doesn't he? But let's not forget those scribes. They had heard, they had read, they had known, and they did not come. That, I think, is the, one of the often unsung tragedies of the story. To hear, to read, to know, to be so close, within a few miles, and yet not come. We're going to sing a song in just a minute. It's a song with a familiar line. In fact, I'll ask the worship team, the choir, to come on back up now. We're going to sing a song that has a familiar line, and yet it also has a twist to it. You've probably heard it before. Come all ye unfaithful, 
Because it's never about us being faithful enough to merit God's approval and to come to God by our own means and our own strength. No, it's come all ye unfaithful to the one who was faithful for us in our place, on our behalf, to give us his life. And, and we'll sing the song together, and you can sing it as a testimony, perhaps your testimony, that yes, even when I am unfaithful, God continues faithful because he cannot deny his promises. God will do what his word says. Or perhaps you can hear it and sing it as an invitation. You know you're unfaithful. You know you're unworthy just as I'm unfaithful and I'm unworthy. But this is, an un, this is an invitation, not to those who measure up, but to those who know they cannot. To come, all ye unfaithful, to come and worship the newborn king. Father, I pray that you would open our hearts, that this Christmas, just a little more fully, Lord, the eyes of our understanding would be enlightened to know more fully and deeply your Savior and his grace for us. Father, let us see that even in our unfaithfulness, you have been faithful for us, and your own son gave himself for us. Oh God, every gift that we give on this Christmas flows out of the gift that you have given us in the life that is in your son. We thank you for that. It's in his name we pray.